Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. silently with me as I bring us before the Father. Dear Heavenly Father, may your kingdom be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would give us the heart of David who yearned for more of you. Help us to seek the things that are above where you, Christ, is seated, is at the right hand of the Father. And that you would help set our minds on things that are above and not on things on the earth. For we are a children of you. And with that, Father, I pray that you continue your sanctifying work within our hearts as you clean us and set us apart, that we may glorify you and do the work that you've created and saved us to do. And Lord, bring into remembrance of how great you are, from the fact that we can breathe to the fact that we have skin to the fact, Lord, that we have family and people that love us and ways in which we're able to maintain and keep our household and our finances. We rejoice that you are adding souls each day to your kingdom. We pray that you may empower us to join in sharing the gospel here at OVBC, that we may water the fields with love and grace and compassion, that you may give us an increase of redeemed people as this body grows. And we humbly ask that you send your spirit to empower us, to teach us and guide us in the way that you've set before us. May you be glorified this morning in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark as we continue in Mark. Now moving to chapter 7. We're making some good headway into the gospel of Mark. The title of today's message is All Worship is not created equal. Not all worship is created equal. We're still at the end of the later Galilean ministry. Jesus is moving his way through his last days or so through the north part of Israel. And he's going to be soon moving his way down to Jerusalem. Back in January, Dustin in his introductory message on Mark had said, when you read Mark, it becomes clear that he has one goal in mind, and that's to introduce the reader to the person of Jesus Christ. Mark's gospel is no ordinary letter or just a recollection of past events, but a bold proclamation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. Mark is not writing a biography, but recording the ministry and message of the good news of Jesus the Messiah. So the Gospel of Mark is a collection of the life of Jesus written to Christians in Rome to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God through His teaching, His healings, His miracles, His authority over the spiritual and natural world, authority over the interpretation of scriptures, His authority over religious leaders, and even His authority over life and death. In chapter 7, as we work our way through, Mark's theme now switches from the miracles, so to speak, of Jesus to matters of purity. The first encounter entails uh, more conflict with the Pharisees. 
The second and third accounts that we'll see as we go through chapter 7 deal with Jesus' interaction with two Gentiles and their desire for healing. This week we're going to examine the conflict with religious leaders who come with a delegation of scribes from Jerusalem. You may recall from Mark chapter 3 verse 6 that the religious and political leaders are seeking to destroy Jesus at all costs. Their desire is to shut him up and to shut down his ministry. And this conflict is going to be centered today on ceremonial purity as dictated by the Jewish traditions. Father, we come with that in mind, asking that you may open up your word, that we may see it as those Roman Christians would have. And Lord, may it encourage us and challenge us. Lord, I pray that you help us to separate between what is your word and what's our opinion and our traditions. Lord, help us to see if our worship is acceptable to you. Father, let us desire to know the difference between truth and that which is not. And Father, I pray that you bless this time. May your spirit have free reign. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to give you several observations. The first thing I want to see as we move through the first six verses, and then we see that the Pharisees are seeking to undermine Jesus. That's their whole goal. They want to undermine Jesus, and this time they're going to do it by accusing his disciples of not following the traditions. Let's look at the first verse. It says here on the screen or in your Bible, it says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, That is, they were unwashed. The Pharisees, you might recall, were respected religious leaders and theologians whose opinions and interpretations carried much weight with the people. You did not want to fall into their crosshairs. They were very religious and legalistic, and they expected everyone to worship as they did. In this particular encounter, the Pharisees are actually posing a question about ceremonial purity versus ceremonial defilement, not about personal hygiene. This is not about just eating with dirty hands. They aren't accusing them of being uncouth or dirty, but of violating religious tradition. Their most important interpretations were found in what we call the Mishnah, They noticed that the disciples did not wash their hands before eating, which according to traditions was really against the Mosaic law or a violation of the law. Mark gives here an editorial note in the parentheses that we're going to look at to explain the Jewish customs found in their oral tradition. Look at verse 3. For all the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, it's important for us to understand the purpose of the ceremonial law. It was to govern the form of Israel's worship, especially in contrast with the nations around them and how they worshiped. They included instructions on regaining the right standing with God, such as sacrifices and other ceremonies regarding being clean. It regarded remembrances of God's work in Israel, like the feasts and the festivals, specific regulations meant to distinguish Israelites from their pagan neighbors, such as their dietary laws and their clothing restrictions, and also signs that point to the coming Messiah, such as the Sabbath and circumcision, Passover, and the redemption of the firstborn. 
So the ceremonial laws were things that set them apart in various ways from the other nations. And it was in this way they were to show the uniqueness of their worship to God. In the book of Leviticus, the one book that probably many of us skip when it comes to the reading plan, we find a long list of ceremonial observances that they required to follow. And let me just say as a side note, if you're reading your the Bible and you get, you know, Genesis is pretty interesting, Exodus is pretty interesting, then all of a sudden you get to Leviticus and all of a sudden you just start to get to some weird stuff, right? But I would encourage you, the book of Leviticus is very, very important. For in it, you'll find many of these ceremonial laws and what it is, it's showing how they're set apart. Now that's going to be important because we're going to talk a little bit about next week how Jesus comes and finishes or completes that ceremonial law. But here... They're still to follow those dietary and all those types of rules about cleanliness. There are a list of animals they could and couldn't eat. There's a list of birds they could and couldn't eat, things they could and couldn't touch, ways they could and couldn't cook, uh, dietary features, features of clothing, things they could drink, things that they couldn't. Uh, there's a mass of ceremonies in the Old Testament. It seems to me that you were a Jew living in that day, that life must have been just very complicated and exhausting at times to follow all those ceremonial laws. One of the concerns was ceremonial defilement that required the washing of body and clothing and vessels. Now, the ceremonial purification was actually required for only four acts. The first one was the birth of a child. The second one was a contact with the corpse. The third one was certain diseases, including leprosy. And then fourthly, uncleanness due to a running sore. So in any of those types of things, there was a ceremony in which you had to go before the priest and there were certain things that you had to wash, things that you had to do in, 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 um, in relation to that. John MacArthur notes that at no time in the Old Testament, and this is important, does it ever say that those things were sinful. It isn't sinful to have a child or a bodily function or to touch a dead body or to touch an animal that isn't fit for consumption. So the Bible never says these things were sin, but it said that it constituted a person ritually unfit. In other words, they couldn't come to the temple and offer sacrifices until they were then fit or clean. And that's very important. They couldn't come in to worship God because of this external unfitness until they had followed whatever the prescribed cleansing that was made necessary to prepare them physically to come into the presence of God. This concept of ritual purity, this rite of circumcision and the observance of the Sabbath were very essential to the Jewish culture, social, and identity. So obviously the Pharisees were really concerned that the disciples did not seem to follow them. As we look in verse 5, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? In this case, they seem to have a case. What is going on here? To them, they are not following the law of Moses. However, as we go through, that's not really what is happening here. Because according to the Mosaic law, priests were required to wash their hands and feet before performing their duties. Over the time, the rabbis had changed this to include all Israelites. They had to come to believe that you had to go through ceremonial washings of your hands for two reasons. And I thought this was unique. This is coming from a study Bible. It says, one, if you touched a Gentile that day, you had been defiled. You couldn't touch a Gentile. 
So you had to be very, very careful. And this was a prescribed ceremony to detoxify yourself because of Gentile touch. You're in the marketplace. You grab food from there. You buy them. You might have accidentally touched one and brushed one. So before you ate, you would have to clean your health, you know, clean your hands and do all sorts of things to make sure that you were clean. Now, that's not prescribed in the Old Testament. It's not prescribed in the Mosaic Law. But the rabbis taught that there was actually a demon by the name of Shipta, and he dwelt on people's hands while they slept. Do you ever get that tingling feeling when you're, in, when you're sleeping? Now you know why. So if they did not go through the ceremonial washings that eliminated him, they would, pass him to, they would pass him to their food and into their bodies. This became so important to them that one rabbi taught, whosoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his common food with rinsed hands may rest assured that he shall obtain eternal life. They believed that you received eternal life, or one way to receive eternal life, was going through ceremonial rinsing of your hands. So for them, this is very important. They're wanting to undermine Jesus, and they finally find a way and see that his disciples are not doing it. They're not washing their hands before they eat. Well, what we see, the next thing that I observe here is that Jesus rebukes them with an accusation of his own. Jesus is not going to let that stand. We see that in verse 6 when he says, And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus quotes from Isaiah to point out that they are following in the foolishness of their forefathers with false worship. We read this a little earlier in Scripture, in which God is now saying, Your worship is not good. You're not worship me in the way that's prescribed. And they do this in three different ways as we go on. They are worshiping God not in the way he prescribed. It's in three different ways. And we go in the first one is they rendered the traditions of men as commands of men. Look at verse 7 where he says, Teaching as the doctrines, the commandments of men. The tradition of elders were interpretations of scriptures that were handed down from one esteemed rabbi to another. Over 5,000 plus laws were added to the 613 from the Old Testament. One theologian notes that the traditions were created by the great rabbis, was passed on from one generation to the next, and they were considered binding. In other words, you're now teaching your traditions, your commandments of man, as doctrine found in Scripture. They held the same authority as Scripture. And this is a problem. He says, your worship now is getting further, further from me because you're getting further from Scripture. You're teaching things as Scripture that are not. The second way in which he accuses them of not honoring him with their hearts is that they replace the commands of Scripture with traditions. When he says in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. At first, they were just teaching the commandments of men as doctrines. They're just kind of, you know, saying they're the same. Now he's saying, no, now we're just going to take out the commandment and we're going to replace them. And now these things become more effective. The traditions were created for good reasons. You and I create traditions and we create things for good reasons. And that was to safeguard against breaking the law. But they wound up actually becoming greater than the law itself. They no longer even needed scripture as tradition now has become the law. So not only did they render their traditions of man as commands, 
they eventually moved to the next step and said, you know what, these things are greater than the commands of God, which then left to the third thing. And I think this is just a progression. I think we find it today in, in modern churches and traditions and, and the ways we teach, just as we did back then, is they then rejected Scripture in order to establish the tradition. Look at verse 9. And Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your doctrine. See, it's not enough to say, you know, I want to take this tradition, this command of mine, and I want it to set it alongside Scripture. So we make this kind of thing. It says, well, you know, if I'm going to say, put no worthless thing before your eyes, Proverbs. All right, so... Let's see, you know, we don't want to break that law, so let's come up with some ways, some safeguards. So, let's see, well, you know what? If you go to movies, there's some things in movies that are really bad. So, let's just say that it's not a good thing to go to a movie. Be careful what you watch. Oh, you know what? Be careful what you watch on TV, okay? Because that has some bad things. Oh, you know what? Be careful of the magazines you buy. Oh, you know what? Be careful, you know, because if you go to the beach, you know, the girls are in their kinnies, guys, their shirts off. So let's be careful. So there's some safeguards. Sound, sound reasonable, right? You may have some of those, and those are good. But what happened in this case, now I'm going to just bring something uh, that's more modern, is we now take those things, take them off, leave the tradition there, and say, this here is also a command of God. So that's what we do. You can't go to movies, you can't watch TV, you can't look at magazines, and you can't go to the beach. What's happened? It's no longer become something that just helps you, it becomes something that becomes a command. But then what they did is said, you know what, well, we need to make sure, because people keep going back to law, I need to make this the new standard. Oh, let's take this off here. This is the command, this is the standard. You must not do this. And the point is, is now this safeguard, you don't even know why it's even in there. Because you lost what the true commandment was. Now, I've lived in those types of churches, have you? In which they've rendered a tradition and set it as doctrine. Then you take and you just say, well, this here, this teaching, is just as important, if not more important than the doctrine. And then you say, you know, forget the why, let's just do the do. And then we just make our religion, our worship, all about the how-tos and the what-tos. And that's what we live. Now again, is there anything wrong with the traditions and the safeguards? No, no. We do this all the time. If you have a two-year-old, you put up safeguards, right? Protect your child and love your children, right? So we may come up with little safeguards. But what happens if we make the safeguards more important than our children? In the end, we just don't care about our children. We just care about our rules. By the way, that's why it says, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Why? Because in the end, we think our rules are more important than our children. Why? Because then you're attacking me. We make it about ourselves. And we forget the whole purpose of the commands. We do that with our children. We do that with our marriages. We do that with all sorts of things. Is eventually the traditions, the safeguards become the doctrine. And we replace it. 
And Jesus is saying, your worship is no good. He's saying, you're saying with your mouth you love me, but your actions are showing something totally, totally the, in, the difference. The end result of the tradition was the total rejection of the command of God in order that the tradition would now regulate man's life completely. And if you know anything about Jewish life, it did. They would take honor the Sabbath. And so they would make all these regulations where you could walk so far, and you could do this, you can pick this up, but you can't use the other hand to set it down. They'd had all sorts of things. You wouldn't even understand why the Sabbath was important. It was more important to not walk so far or to carry something. I mean, you could starve to death or allow someone to starve to death because he's in a hole. Now, if he was an animal, they allowed you to get him out and save him. But if it was your mother, oh well. She should have known better. Now he gives an example. and Here's the important thing. Now Jesus now gives them an example of exactly how they have done just what I demonstrated. Let's look at verse 9. For Jesus said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Look at verse 10. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely what? Die. The first quote is from Exodus 20, verse 12, and is known as the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God has given you. It's reiterated in Ephesians chapter 6. We all know that. Honor your mother and father. Obey your mother and father. But the second quote is from the next chapter in Exodus 21, verse 17, which gives the penalty for disobedience of the fifth commandment where he says, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. So God gives a command, and then he says, here's the penalty for going against that command. So Jesus says, let me share with you exactly what you're doing. Basically, the application of this law was to honor your mother and father was to honor your parents, and in this example that we're about to read, it meant to take care of your parents even in their older years. Let me tell you, Children, and I think if I look around, some of you may be suspect, but I believe all of you are children of some parents. I believe so, right? Some of you, were, were, you know, science may not be settled, but we're still thinking that most of you were children at one time and have parents to thank for that. We are to love and honor and obey our parents for our life. I tell my children, listen, I'm your parent for life. yes. You may marry and you may leave and cleave and you go out on your own. And yes, I don't have that accountable, but you're always going to be my child. That relationship may change, but you're always my child. And children, you're to honor your parents for the rest of your life. And this application we're going to see, it may mean including in their older years. So the application is you honor your parents for the lifetime. However, the people have become so hard-hearted that they looked for loopholes to escape their responsibility. Look at verse 11. He gave them the two laws. He gave them the law, and he gives them what's going to happen if they don't. Verse 11. But you say, here it is, they're rendering something different, they're replacing it, and then eventually they're going to reject the commandment of God. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is from God. In other words, whatever I might give you, I have said Corban, 
which means I've given it to God, then you are no longer to permit him to do anything for his father and mother. Thus you make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you have done. He gives him one example. Is what you're supposed to do is to honor your mother and father. And so obviously in those days, there was no retirement. There was no pension. There was no social security. Families took care of each other. It was, uh, it was common for generations to live in a house. And, have, and it's interesting, we're coming back to that, are we not? And they're to take care of their parents. But what they would do is they would say, oh, listen, my parents are in need. Maybe they need food. Maybe they just needed someone to take care of them. Maybe they needed their house patched up, whatever it is. But they say, oh, wait a second. Oh, mom and dad, man, I would give you this. But I said, Corban, I have given this to God. And so that permitted them then to let their parents to destitution and allow them to escape any type of punishment, not only from their parents or from any legal party that could hold them accountable. You see what they're doing? They're looking for loopholes to get out of the command to honor your father and mother. Now, what's interesting in studying this, that did not stop them from using their own money for their own personal use or to actually donate it to the temple. They didn't actually have to say, oh, well, I gave that money, so now I have no money to give you. It just allowed them to say, well, I'm going to give it to God. But they could still use it for their own purposes. They didn't even have to donate it to the temple or any type of priest. Just offered them a way out of obeying God's law. I'm not sure why anyone would do this other than a hardened heart that is consumed with covetousness and selfishness. This is the heart of the Pharisees and the Jewish person at that time is they would replace eventually the law of God with their own traditions and their own commands. As we know from Christ's teaching, the entire Mosaic law was hinged on two laws. Do we not know? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. And let me tell you, your spouse, your children, your parents are also considered your neighbors. However, they had separated like we do with the secular and the sacred. Oh, this is God's, and this is the way in which we'll love you. Oh, I love God too much, I can't give to you. However, we're to do both. One flows from the other. Don't say you love God if you're not loving your neighbor. Don't say you're loving your neighbor if you're not loving God. One is empowered from the other. And these Pharisees were guilty of not doing so. And number three, the third, is that there was a big consequence for rendering God's word and replacing God's word and rejecting God's word. The consequence was found in verse 7a, where it says, in vain do they worship me. Get this. They were trying to please God with their lips. And they were trying to do it with their own prescribed traditions and commandments. But in the end, God rejected their worship. He says, everything you're doing, 
And they did do some good things. One of the Jewish tenets was they were to help the poor. They were very good for charity. But God says, everything that you're doing is worthless. Your prayers are worthless. Your sacrifice is worthless. Your teaching is worthless. We see that in our scripture reading in Isaiah 1, 10 through 20. God is speaking to him and says, your worship is worthless. It's in vain. I do not accept it. The Pharisees made a show of devotion, yet the religious tradition took precedence over God's word. And like their ancestors, the Pharisees worshipped in vain. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, God warned the Israelites, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do it. You shall not add to it or take from it. Very simple. But yet Jesus just showed us that in three ways they did. It was the Pharisees, not the disciples, who were the guilty party. The Pharisees were hypocrites for two reasons. One, their actions were merely external, and they do not come from the heart. Their teachings, number two, are not from God, but reflect human tradition, even when that human tradition had good intentions. In the end, the Pharisees judge the spiritual condition and the spiritual heart of worship from the external. Instead of using obedience to Scripture to determine right and wrong, they used observance of traditions which were of their own making. Hey, you can be good and be right with God if you get to make up the rules, right? How would you like it? You know what, Don, tell me three things that you can do and, and I'll give you eternal life. Boy, what would you make up? Hey, I'll eat bacon, uh, I'll eat bacon biscuits, and I'll eat bacon biscuits and, you know, you know, whatever, you know. I would love to make up my own rules and regulations. By the way, you do. But God says no. I don't know how well-intentioned they are. It's obedience to Scripture, not observance to traditions. True religion deals with the very nature of man, not just external behavior. Matthew Henry, a famous commentary of the 1800, or 1800s, 18th century, 1700s. Matthew Henry in his commentary says, Never let us think that the religion of the Bible can be improved by human addition, either in doctrine or in practice. Amen? Why did Mark think that this encounter was important to the Roman church? The Apostle John tells us there are many things that they did not even write about when it concerns Jesus. He says even the books of all the world at that time could not hold all the works of Jesus. So why did he include this thing that really was a debate about things you and I weren't even considering? And in this case, they were not even considering in Rome. Why did Mark think this so important to the Roman church? And mainly, I think it's because of this reason. God is seeking worshipers. It's why you and I were created. It's the whole purpose of Scripture and the revelation of God. In speaking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus said in Luke, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such 
people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The Pharisees, with their traditions, were essentially pointing people to the wrong God. Worship, in this case, is focusing and seeing God as our object of admiration. But when it's tradition and man-made rules, what becomes the object of admiration? Me. Because I made them. And I keep them. And I judge others by how well they do according to them. Their tradition was leading people away from God. And that brings us to the main point. is worship. And I want you to get this. Our worship cannot be separated from Scripture. Our worship cannot be separated from the commands of God. God has prescribed in His Word how you and I are to worship Him. The Jews had theirs in the Old Testament. Now that that ceremonial and legalistic law is not for you and I. We'll look at that a little bit next week. But in Psalms 51... We see that God has not left it up for you and I to decide how to focus and how to worship and honor God. For in Psalms 51, great chapter, David has sinned. He's now looking at trying to repent and make himself right with God. And speaking for God, he says in verse 16 of 51, he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices in verse 17 of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Safeguards and traditions are good, but yet they can never take the place of what God has called us to do. Now I want to end here with Mark. Because as I said before, Mark is trying to display or attempting or succeeding, I would say. I want to make us be careful. Mark is displaying to the Roman church and to you and I that Jesus is the Son of God. That's his whole plan. And he includes this point, this encounter, to display that. And through this encounter with the Pharisees, Jesus points out that he is the true interpreter of God's word and not the Pharisees. In Mark chapter 1, Mark notes that the people were astonished at the teaching of Jesus, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Why? Because authority is not found in man's traditions and man's rules, but it's found in the word of God. You can say amen at that, because that's a good one to say amen. The apostle John points out in his gospel that Jesus is the word made flesh. Paul writes in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, like he does in the Sermon on the Mount, corrects their teaching and application of the Word of God. He says, you have it all wrong. And he turns the table and he shows them their guilt in following their traditions. Well, how does this instruct and encourage the Roman Christians? Instructs them to be careful about adding to and subtracting from the Word of God. They are warned not to elevate human traditions and interpretations to the same level as the commands of God. Like the Corinthian church that Paul writes about, they may have been tempted to add their tradition and their culture in the worship of God. You might remember in our study in Corinth that Corinth's worship also was being rejected. 
They had all the spiritual gifts. They had all the things, but they were becoming so intertwined with the world that they could not follow the commands of God. And Mark is wanting to encourage and instruct that church, do not let your Roman culture, do not let your traditions, do not let your rules and your regulations lead you away from true worship. For you and I, how does this instruct and encourage us today? Well, you and I also need to read Scripture with open hearts and eyes and led by the Holy Spirit to interpret and apply correctly. You and I need to be careful not to add to Scripture traditions and preferences that diminish the commandments of God. You and I need to do this by asking several questions. One, how do we teach traditions of men as doctrine? If you grew up like I did, you would use physical appearance. The way you wear your hair, the way you would mark or unmark your body. It would be if you're smoking or drinking, things of that nature. Uh, church attendance, church serving, church giving. You can say you got to come three days a week. Uh, you can do it through the social gospel. You can do it by working hard. There's so many ways in which we can take safeguards, but yet do them wrongly. And I gave you an example earlier when I said, let not your eyes see any worthless thing. And we make good safeguards. And then we do this, and then we do that. And before you know it, the safeguards, the traditions are more important. And then we judge people by those traditions. You and I, were quick to accuse the Catholic Church of doing so, and they are. They're guilty of this very thing. However, the shoe is on our foot also. For we are just as guilty in many ways of doing the same thing. In our study time for this message, Dustin and I were talking and he remarked that our own traditions can blind us to the true meaning of God's Word. So let me ask you, what are some traditions and things that you've held, maybe since a little kid, that's blinding you to what the Word of God truly says? For some people, it could be the translation of the Bible. Some people, it could be the type of music we might play. To some, it's whether or not we have pews or chairs. To some, it may mean whether we stand or we sit at certain times. But there are ways in which they can blind us to the Word of God. Do we neglect our family and our orphans and our widows looking for loopholes to get out of the commands of God? Husband, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Do we look for ways to get out of that? Have we taken our safeguards and our traditions and elevated them to a status which is wrong? And number two, I'll leave you with this, is our worship accepted by God. And our worship is more than just this today. It's 24-7. Is the way that you're living your life, is it pointing to God or is it pointing away from God? If it's pointing to you, then you're pointing from God. And, and you know what? I'm very, very sensitive to this. And I know that we as pastors can be guilty of pointing to us and to our opinions, and to our interpretation. And so we as a church, there are many times that we have made safeguards that may be different than other churches. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But that tradition can never become mightier than God's Word. We should never judge people based on that. I'll be guilty, and I admit this. My thought process and my tradition made me judge Dustin the first time I saw him. We've talked about this, have we not? So we laugh about it now. But the first time I met Dustin, I turned to Don and said, I don't think this is going to work. And Don said, Rob, 
Don said, I'm being honest, and we've talked about it. We're, we're, we're good, right? Okay, we're good. And I'm just sharing something honest, okay? And we've talked through it. We joke about it now because at first it was. It was something that I had to get past. Why? Because in my mind, and there was nothing bad. It was, I think it was your hair. It was just the hair and the beard and the, and the ears. That was, no, there's no way. Have you heard him preach? Have you received his love and his care? Now, who's the stupid one? Don't say it. (laughs) But amen? We do it all the time. And I want to encourage you. Let it not be so here. Let our worship be accepted. For he's seeking worshipers. Father, let us worship in a way that you respect. So do we worship correctly? Jesus is going to answer that next week. For he's not done with them yet. Praise God, he just doesn't accuse us and then walk off and leave us on our own. Next week, as you know the story, I'm going to ask you to continue reading. I think it's 14 through 23. We're going to see how you and I can get past these blinders and all these things that have built into our lives and even the own prejudice and traditions we have, and we can learn how to worship Him effectively and wonderfully in which He receives it with praise and He pours down His blessing on us. Do you want that? I do. I do. Father, help us to do so. Show us the ways in which, Father, we are still guilty of being a Pharisee. We too have set up things in which we judge others and feeling ourselves spiritually mature or spiritually better than the other. Father, we show ourselves to be decrepit and our worship then is not accepted. Our prayers are not answered and received. So Father, give us a humble heart. Help us to love your commands. Help us to cut through and love your word and let us know what your commands so that when we see tradition, when we see safeguards, we know the difference. We thank you, Lord, for a church and for people who love you. And let it be so. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.